Hello, I'm Dr Ewan Roger and I'm a medieval record specialist in the National Archives. Today I'm going to be telling you some stories from one of the main Tudor courts. Stories of murder, child maintenance and marital disputes. So the Star Chamber was one of the highest courts in Tudor England, which derived its name from the elegantly decorated room in which it was situated, with a ceiling covered in gold stars. It sat at the Royal Palace of Westminster from the late 15th century to the mid-17th century, when it was abolished in 1641. Comprised of royal officials, councillors, lawyers and sometimes the king himself, the court supplemented the judicial activities of the common law and equity courts in both civil and criminal matters. As the archives of central government and the law courts, our collection contains millions of legal records produced by both the common law courts and equity courts such as the Court of Chancery, whose business had grown and developed steadily from the mid-14th century as well as tens of thousands of documents from the councillor courts of the Star Chamber and the Court of Requests. The development of the Star Chamber, as its own distinct court, grew out the judicial arm of the King's Council. By the end of the 15th century, the King's Council had long been recognised as, in Professor John Guy's words, as a forum for litigation and arbitration, especially that which could be set into a context of local disorder and subversion, pervasion of justice, or official maladministration. The court originally dealt with just seven offences, chiefly matters of corruption, civil disobedience, and unlawful assembly. And the scope of cases it dealt with, however, widened as time went on. It generally investigated cases of public disorder, official corruption, municipal and trade disputes, and disputes over enclosures, but its broad remit brought the full spectrum of disputes before the court. Star Chamber cases frequently allege public disorder, such as riots, forcible entry and assault, but many of them were in fact private disputes about rights to property. The violence would have been exaggerated in order to make the case a matter for the royal courts, in order to get an individual's case heard and to secure justice. As such, they generally use highly emotive language to make their point, and the records are full of interesting and varied stories sometimes only with a kernel of truth, but often giving rich descriptions of everyday life, as the broader details of the stories were filled out. The story which I want to talk about today, however, is slightly different. It's a confession of murder, no less, from Essex in the early 16th century, and tells a vivid story of love, adultery, murder, cover-ups and banishment. So we have today the confession of Thomas Bennett of Bewley, late keeper of Wheelie Park in the county of Essex, made on the second day of December in the twelfth year of the reign of Henry VIII, 1521, before several leading members of the Royal Council, including the future Chancellor, Thomas More. The confession begins on Ash Wednesday in the seventh year of the reign of the King, so we're in 1516 here, when Elizabeth Osborne, the wife of Alan Osborne of Thorpe in Essex, went to Harwich to buy fish. There she met one Thomas Bennett, who cast favour to her and helped her to buy her fish. He stayed with her there for the rest of the night, and in the morning, in going homeward, he and she went also way behind the remnants of the company, talking of love. In short, Thomas states that he then stayed with her for a fortnight, during which time he used her as his concubine when he would. During that time, she often complained to Thomas about her husband, saying that she wished he were in Jerusalem, to which Bennett replied that he would have conveyed her husband well out of the way. 
She's also reported to have said unto Thomas Bennett that her husband would have given her a blow, to which Bennett answered that if he had given her one, he should give her no more. On the Thursday before Michaelmas Day in the following year, Thomas met with Alan Osborne, Elizabeth's husband, in Wheelie Park in Essex at about eight in the morning and picked a quarrel with him, calling him Jealous Fool. They quarrelled, during which time Alan forbid Thomas from visiting his house, for Thomas struck Osborne with an ashen shaft of five foot long that he had in his hand, in such wise that he fell to the floor, struck dead. He then tries to pick Osborne up, as if he didn't mean to kill him, but Osborne's body falls down dead, so Thomas drags the body into a nearby brook and left him there until nightfall. Two hours after the murder, Thomas came to Osborne's house to tell Elizabeth the news. She wept, asking how she was supposed to conceal it, and Thomas then follows with saying he did not lie with her for two nights after he'd slewn the said Osborne. Clearly admirable self-restraint being shown here. They agreed together that she should say that her husband had gone to Birdo, having upon him a plunket coat, a hood of black warstead, and a woollen white nightstep, which apparel by both their agreements was locked up in a spare table. So essentially they're setting up their alibi by saying that he was last seen wearing a certain outfit, but they need to hide these clothes away in order to avoid getting caught. So that night they buried Osborne in a saw pit, one flight shot from the place that he was killed, so the distance an arrow would fly. And they laid two pieces of logs or timber on him to keep the body from floating away because there was water in the saw pit. Over the next couple of weeks, Thomas returned to the burial site on multiple occasions, adding yet more dirt onto the pit each time, until the pit was entirely filled in and Osborne's body was safely hidden. So, the murder's been done, and Thomas Bennett, the lover of Elizabeth Osborne, has killed her husband, with the two of them having, for the time being at least, covered up the murder and put together an alibi. Evidence from a further deposition found elsewhere in the records of the Star Chamber adds a bit more information here about the goings-on of Thomas and Elizabeth. The partial deposition records that the same Bennett, denying utterly that he had ever offended with the said Osborne's wife, with regards to their fish-buying and their extramarital behaviour rather than the murder, he promised one Sir John Rainsford, his master, that from thenceforth he would not resort to her nor keep company with her. However, after that time, the said Sir John, being at his manor of Cradfield, starts to hear rumours from the country that Alan Osborne has gone to Birdo, as he had done in times past, so so far Bennett's alibi is holding up, but he was also informed that the said Bennett, in Osborne's absence, continued his evil rule with Osborne's wife. Whereupon the said Sir John sent for Elizabeth and enjoined her to avoid the same town of Thorpe where she lived, within short time after, or else she would be set in the pillory, the pillory being what we often think of as the stocks, a form of public punishment, and she would be compelled to depart from the town against her will. By sending Elizabeth away, Sir John believed that this would cause Bennet to remedy his ways, and so she, rather than he, was sent away. It hardly seems very fair. But let's return to Bennett's confession. More than a year and a half after Osborne's murder, it was still openly said by many of his neighbours that Thomas Bennett had killed Osborne. And about Christmas the year after the murder, Osborne's clothes had been found in the table, in which they had been hidden, by Thomas Pennington and Alice Roth, two of Osborne's servants, 
which they disclosed to several people in town. So here the alibi is beginning to slip, and suspicions are rising that Thomas Bennett had in fact slain Osborne. Bennett proceeded to burn the incriminating clothes in the lodge at Wheelie Park in order to keep his secret safe. And it was also noted that he had, by certain means, managed to get back into Elizabeth's house. And the following Lent, Bennett was sent for by his master and was told to meet him at Bentley, amongst others, including a knight called Sir William Purton. At this time, William Purton called Bennett to him and said, There goeth a great crime upon thee in the country, that thou hast killed Osborne. Beware thereof, for I assure thee, if thou have done it, thou must not trust thy master, for he will not help thee. And then after they departed, Sir John also called Bennett secretly to him, and said, Bennett, I am sorry for thee, for there goeth a great crime upon thee in the country, that thou hast slain Osborne, and if thou so have, the devil is on thee, that thou art here now. now. These are quite interesting points in themselves, as we don't always see evidence of criminals being warned in the official records. It only often comes out in evidence of his depositions and confessions. Having been accused, Bennett denied the crime. He'd clearly been warned off already. And Sir John continued, If thou have done it, beware, for there never was murder done, but it will come out. And he said he would send for the woman, and bade him farewell. And within the next few days, he sent for Elizabeth Osborne to come to Cradfield Hall, where he examined her. Bennett, having heard of Elizabeth's summons, waited at the edge of the park, so he might see who came in and who came out of the hall. And he was in great fear that she might confess the truth, and that he would be sent to Colchester, to the prison rather than just the town. He states in his confession that if this had happened, if she had been arrested, he would have rescued her, or else he would have died for it. Of course, whether he's doing this for love of her, or merely to save his own skin, is dubious at best. When he eventually saw her going home, he met her to ask how it had gone. She reported that she had been in great fear, but had confessed nothing, for which he was glad, and so they departed, he to Wheelie Lodge, and she to her own house, where they stayed until between Michaelmas and Hallowtide next year. And about Christmas next year, so we're now in 1518, Thomas Bennett decided to leave town, and he begins to start to sell part of his goods. But in the following Lent, he met with a man named Old Thomas Christmas in Colchester, who gave him counsel to sell all of his goods and his lands, and to go his way if he were guilty. And he said that some young gentleman should get him a pardon for just 20 marks. By purchasing a royal pardon, he would then have been able to buy his freedom. Now, Old Mr Christmas ended up buying Bennett's movable goods for £50, but Bennett claims in his confession that he never received a penny for his lands and other goods which he'd been promised. So having sold all his worldly goods, Bennett went to visit Sir John Rainsford, again in Cranfield Hall. As he did so, he found Sir John walking through the park towards Bennett's house. And at this point, Sir John called Bennett secretly to him and said, Bennett, thou art about to go thy way. To which Bennett replied, Nay. And Sir John said, Yes, thou wouldst nor else would you sell thy goods and thy lands too. And eventually Bennett said, Sir, I will tell you. To which Sir John replied, Nay, tell me nothing. God be with thee. So he's clearly staying well clear of any connection with the accused Bennett. And so they departed again for that time. Bennett was clearly trying to sell everything that he owned, and the next day we actually find him trying to return a horse, which he'd previously bought, back to its owner. 
Shortly after this, matters came to a head. On the Monday after Passion Sunday, Sir John Rainsford came to Wheelie Park, and there came also William Purton and Sir William Purton, Humphrey Wingfield and Sir John Sinclair, with diverse others. And there, in the presence of all the aforesaid gentlemen, Sir John, standing beside the lodge, said to Bennet, Bennet, I am as sorry as ever I was of anything in my life. It is a common word in the country that thou have killed yonder woman's husband, and they talk that, but for fear of me, you would have been taken. And as for me, if I knew that you did it, there should be no man have business with the taking of thee, but I would fear I would take thee myself. And now, masters, if any of you know it by him, whosoever it be, let him take him. And there was no man that answered anything. Whereupon the said Sir John Rainsford continued, Well, Bennet, here I discharge thee of the keeping of this park and of my service, and I charge thee that thou neither were in my livery nor call thyself my servant till thou have cleared thee of this matter. Howbeit, if thou can clear thyself thereof, I will be as good a master to thee as ever I have been, and better too. And then, as the company were riding homeward, Bennet spoke to Sir one John Strangeman, servant to Sir John, and asked him what was best to do. And he also asked Humphrey Wingfield, who answered it would be best for him to be indicted. And then answered John St. Clair, where shall we find twelve men that will indict him? So the various accusations running around the countryside have forced Sir John to abandon Thomas Bennett and to release him from all service. Without any proof, there isn't the grounds at this point for Bennett to be indicted or put to trial. And so Sir John tells him to prove his innocence before he can return to service. The assembled company then departed Wheelie Hall, and William Purton and Sir William Purton, his son, went to Thorpe and went bowling. And Bennett, still seeking help, came after them on foot and bowled with them. And while they were bowling, William Purton, the father, said to him, Thomas, I am sorry for this matter, but if I were you, it should cost me £20 to seek out this man. And Thomas Bennett answered, If I knew where he were, I would be glad to bestow it. So he's still seeking his royal pardon, but he can't find anyone to secure him one. And then within a fortnight, Bennett was discharged of his service and departed out of Essex towards what he describes as solace, and which we might know by the term sanctuary, a privilege of certain religious houses where legal officials are not allowed to arrest those dwelling within. Bennett was headed for Bewley Abbey in Hampshire, one of the most prominent Tudor sanctuary sites. And as he goes, he takes a black-coloured horse out of Wheelie Park, which was recorded as being one Davy Rutherford's, and sold him, taking the money with him. But he doesn't go alone to sanctuary, as it's recorded that he tasked his servant John Davy to bring Elizabeth to solace before him, although we have no indication of whether she wanted to go or not. Bennett took with him £60 in cash and other goods worth £40 and departed towards solace, where part of the money was taken from him and part from John Davy, his servant. He doesn't have the smoothest journey, however. He loads his goods and sends them by boat. But when they arrive at Rye in Sussex, they're arrested by the searcher there and afterwards re-delivered for 26 shillings and eightpence. When the boat then arrived at Scilly in the same county, they were once again arrested by one Ralph Foreman, yeoman of the Crown. And it was recorded that the said Bennett lost those goods there, which he seems more upset about than losing his affinity to Sir John. Unfortunately, we don't know much more about Bennett's fate. He arrives in Bewley despite his goods being lost and tries to remedy his situation. We know he sends a letter to Sir John Rainsford, written by one Master Chessin, a sanctuary man, 
in which he asked Sir John to be a good and special master unto him, and help that he might come home to him again. And he says he would be glad even to be his cook, and to turn spits in his kitchen. Sir John replied, again answering that if Bennett could clear himself, he would be as good a master to him as ever he was. And after that, at Bennett's instance, the abbot of Beaulieu wrote a letter to Sir John, a letter in Bennett's name, desiring him to write to the Bishop of Chichester for the delivery of his goods. Whereupon, as the confession ends, Sir John wrote unto the Bishop of Chichester for his goods, but he never had his goods of the Bishop of Chichester. Possibly, Bennett was preparing to abjure the realm, the process by which a felon could confess their crime, forfeit all property, and leave England by a determined route, never to return on fear of execution. Abjuration was very much linked with the privileges of sanctuary, particularly sanctuary at the larger monastic sites such as Beaulieu, where there was no official limit to the amount of time a felon could remain in sanctuary. This was limited to 40 days in parochial churches. Interestingly, this case takes place during a period of intense discussion around how to reform the practices of sanctuary and abjuration to prevent such monasteries from becoming dens of thieves. And indeed, the privilege of sanctuary was later limited by Henry VIII and abolished completely in the 17th century. Now, this case is interesting for a number of reasons, showing us on one hand some of the hidden mechanisms of the early Tudor legal system, where suspected criminals could openly flaunt the system against a background of community outrage and accusations. Bennett is warned several times not to admit any crimes and told him to acquit himself by purchasing a royal pardon, which he's eventually unable to do. Unfortunately, no further evidence is known to survive for this case, and we have no indication whether Bennett was convicted, whether he ever received a royal pardon, whether he lived out his days in sanctuary, or whether he abjured the realm. He's already lasted five years by the point of the trial, so he's done fairly well by any standards. On the other hand, cases such as this are really interesting, not just for the purposes of legal history, but also giving an insight into daily life. Depositions, confessions and other evidential material gives a real insight into the day-to-day activities of Tudor people, shedding light on marital problems, adultery and conspiracy, as well as the more raw emotions of jealousy, love and fear. Instances of marital discord come through from time to time in the records of the Star Chamber, giving a voice to these often forgotten voices. An interesting example of this comes out in the case of Alice Belknap, late wife to Sir Edward Belknap, who was one of those signing off Bennett's confession. After Sir Edward's death, Alice remarried one John Bridges, in whom she trusted she would find love, gentleness and honest behaviour, and who would lovingly entertain both his new wife and such friends, kinsfolk and lovers as were wont to resort and accompany with her before her said marriage. Now, presumably these aren't the same lovers in the same way we might think of it today, or else it would have been a very open marriage. However, after their marriage, it came out that John was more interested in Alice's substantial land holdings rather than her, and so she took him to court, claiming that he was but of mean degree and little worth. He acted in most cruel and ungentle fashion and threatened her friends, lovers, kinsfolk and acquaintances. Cases like this are not entirely uncommon. In a similar case from the early 16th century, for example, one Anne Bannister also took her husband, John Bannister, to court after ten years of marriage, complaining that he had, without reasonable cause or grounds, had of long time absented himself from her company, refusing utterly to suffer her to be with him. 
In the process, he also takes her lands and inheritance and refuses to give her any money for the maintenance either for herself or for her child. As with our murder confession, these cases are interesting as evidence of legal procedure, precedent and the changing laws of marriage. But they also give a glimpse into the everyday lives of men and women, talking of love and marital disputes. Unfortunately, we don't have a record of the outcome of either case beyond the proceedings. Very few outcomes are known to, to have survived for this period, as the decree and order books in which the court's own outcomes would have been recorded simply don't survive. And so we can only guess whether Alice was able to recover her lands, or whether Anne was able to secure some form of child maintenance from her estranged husband. The details of these legal records need to be taken with caution, as we often see only one side of a dispute, offering vastly trumped-up charges to ensure action is taken. But the details, often incidental, can give new perspectives on everyday life in Tudor England, as well as providing really interesting stories worth studying in their own right. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.